0: This is an ABC podcast. This is the naughty puppy.
1: Hello, naughty puppy. Oh, he says, yes, hello, hello, hello. Yes. <laughs> Look at you. I've got my, I realise my talking to dog's voice is very similar to talking to my toddler voice. I'm so sorry. <laughs>
0: That's so good.
1: Would you like to, yeah? Oh,
2: Benji. Make a noise. <laughs> and they do the snorting. They do everything from that through to yodelling, which is a howl bark.
1: This is a very special kind of dog. So
2: we had uh, all sorts of people owning them over the years too. Shirley Temple, Maren Monroe, Clark Gable. Uh, a whole host of people
1: besides Royals had these dogs. A lot of movie stars. It's special because it's likely this dog is only here in suburban Australia. Thanks to an act of torture...
3: People will just burst out laughing when I show them images of these early dogs. And I think that's fair enough, but I also would like to think that it's not all a laughing matter.
4: What it must have been like and how quickly he realised that he was in desperate trouble and uh, how lonely those last few hours must have been.
1: An action that touches the court of Queen Victoria. And a choice so catastrophic that 160 years later... We're still feeling the ripples. You are weak. This is your
0: fit. There's no way to stop it. <laughs>
1: this job is so strange. <laughs> Bad dog. I'm Mark Fennell, and this is Stuff the British Stole.
5: It's hard to imagine what these gardens were like. I mean, they were at one point, you know, five times the size of the Forbidden City. They were nearly eight times the size of Vatican City. And what it really was was kind of like, imagine you could build Disneyland in your backyard.
1: It's around ten o'clock in the morning, and it's already thirty-six degrees in the heart of Beijing. This is where the story of that dog starts with the local aunties and school students eyeing Jeremiah Jenny. So how is it you ended up in China in the first place?
5: Uh, I came here originally to do research and to study Chinese, and what ended up happening is I ended up getting a teaching job here. That was
1: 18 years ago, but still, Jeremiah stands out. After years of teaching here in Beijing, he now gives tours of Beijing by foot.
5: This is an area here where it's one of the few parts of the gardens where you can still get some sense of the architecture as it, as it was back in the 19th century.
1: Poking out of the grass and dirt are these ornate curled masonry arches with chunks that are just missing. There's decapitated
5: stone columns baking in the heat. You know, if this was still standing, if it hadn't been destroyed, they would be one of the world's great tourist attractions. It would be, they'd make the Forbidden City, you know, seem like an afterthought. And to be clear, this place is a tourist attraction, just not one targeting Westerners. You know, it's one of the, one of the reasons I love this place and I I love taking my students here. I think, you know, what would I do if I had all the money in the world, all the power in the empire and access to a fairly endless supply of cheap non-union labor? And this is what I would create, you know, it's, it's, I think the closest thing we have in Western consciousness to this would be like Michael Jackson's Neverland Ranch, (laughs) minus the creepy sleepovers.
1: It's going to take all of my self-control, but I'm going to resist the urge to call it that. This is what's commonly known as the Old Summer Palace. It's not your average set of ruins. It's huge. All told, this area is the size of 654 football fields. It's filled with lakes and gardens and constant
5: surprises. So imagine like this kind of a garden maze and in the centre, the emperor at the time would sometimes race his concubines through the maze. You know, things to do when you're an emperor and you're bored and you've, you know, you've already conquered Tibet a couple of times, so why not just race the concubines? Emperor sounds like a charmer, doesn't he?
1: The truth is that there is a tangible sense of sadness about this place. I've heard it referred to as China's ground zero. These ruins, I'm told, represent an open wound in history that almost everyone in China knows about, but very few on the outside
5: seem to. I mean, I think one of the words that gets used most to describe, especially this part of the the gardens, the old summer palace, is tragedy. This was one of the great crimes of the 19th century.
0: Yes, the old summer palace. The name is Gardens of Perfect Brightness. And uh, there's another name that is China's national
1: ruin. Qinghua Guo has lived in a lot of places Sweden, Japan, and now Australia, where she currently teaches architecture at Melbourne University. But she has something of a personal claim to these ruins. I was born in
0: Manchuria and um, the last dynasty in Chinese history was the Manchus dynasty.
1: And the first clue as to why this garden of perfect brightness and national ruin exists at all is right here. You see, the Manchus…
0: They love nature, but Beijing is too hot. And they were from the north. Beijing has four seasons, summer is really hot. So they built their own uh, summer palace. Uh, the emperor was there with his family, also the, the emperor's brothers, sisters, and the mother. The old summer palace was designed as a city for the whole family. So that was in fact the heart of the Qing dynasty.
1: It was an imperial city for a home. There was palaces, temples, towers adorned with jade and bronze, gushing fountains with apparently peacocks and ibises. All of it spread over 350 hectares.
0: So it's very,
1: very big. But this scale and this beauty, it had a goal.
0: We believe that life is a circle and we are not immortal, we are mortal. But the immortal are living in a beautiful place. If you build a beautiful place, immortal will come. Then you will become immortal. So that was, that was the, uh, the philosophy.
1: Just imagine that, right? The garden that is so beautiful, it was meant to be a doorway into immortality. And yet here it is, crumbling. So why do the Chinese hold this place so dear? And also, what does any of this have to do with a yapping dog? Well, to answer all of that, we need to set sail. The year is 1860. 11,000 British troops are on their way to China.
5: A very large invasion force, mostly British and French, but the Americans and the Russians were all around too. So there was already a planned invasion and occupation of the capital.
1: This armada that you're sailing with, a part of a conflict that has been brewing for a long time.
5: There had been a a war that was fought between the British, the French and the, the, the Qing Empire or China that ended in 1858 with a negotiation of a treaty, one of these treaties that gave enormous concessions to the foreign powers. The emperor and his court balked at enacting this treaty and the war restarted. These were the Opium Wars.
1: They raged in the middle of the 1800s between the British Empire and the last of the Manchus, the Qing Dynasty. And simply put, these wars were about three things. Drugs, money and power. Who controlled the flow of lucrative opium? Who had to pay whom for tariffs and trade? And who really held sovereignty over China? And at this exact moment in history, China are...
4: They are, relatively speaking, in a state of weakness. They're not a great military power. Uh, They're quite fragmented, but they want to resist the idea that they can simply be dominated by British power.
1: So the voice you're hearing here has a very peculiar relationship with the events of 1860.
4: I'm uh, Chris Bowlby. I'm a writer and broadcaster in Britain. Excellent.
1: Now... You are related to somebody by the name of Thomas Bowlby.
4: Well, yeah, he's uh, someone who I think had various careers. I think he had a legal training and he seems to have kind of slipped into journalism. In those days, of course, it wasn't a kind of lifetime career in the way it might be today. Uh, So he started to uh, report for the Times newspaper in particular. And then I think he gets quite a big break in the area, which I'm very interested in, where he gets himself assigned to a mission, a military mission, an Anglo-French mission to China. Chris's ancestor,
1: Thomas Bowlby, went as an observer and reporter, but what he didn't realise is that he was about to become a crucial player in history in the worst way
5: possible. He befriends Lord Elgin, who is one of the commanders of the mission. And if that name sounds familiar to... To listeners, it's, of course, because he is the son of the Elgin who boosted the marbles from Greece.
4: Son of the famous Lord Elgin associated with the
5: Elgin marbles, the Greek story. So it's a bit of the family business, yeah.
4: So Thomas Bowlby,
1: he hitches his wagon to Lord Elgin.
4: And so he then gets to go on what these days we would call as a kind of embedded journalist on this mission to, as it were, teach China a lesson.
1: And so Lord Elgin, his new mate Thomas Bowlby, start to push their way towards Beijing.
4: And initially, it it does indeed seem a very one-sided affair. And some of his dispatches refer to the fact, for example, that the Brits have got a, a new kind of gun called the Armstrong gun far more powerful than anything had been seen before. And, and he talks about it in, in a, a mixture, I think, of awe, but also uh, almost horror at the destruction which this, this inflicts on the various Chinese garrisons who stand in its way. So that seems to be proceeding well, but then as they approach the Chinese capital...
1: They realise that the British forces have been beaten to the punch.
4: And the French get there
1: first. And the looting of the Summer Palace, that garden of perfect brightness has started.
4: Wonderful artifacts, uh, everything from vases to silks to paintings, and they began to help themselves. And in those days, it was assumed by conquering forces that you, when you read the accounts, they they organize it as if it's a routine part of military pay.
1: Meanwhile, from the Chinese Qing dynasty perspective, things look bad.
4: It's suggested that uh, the Chinese are going to capitulate. What is going to happen is there's going to be a negotiation, basically, a truce, and British envoys are sent to go and negotiate, as they assume, this surrender, that the Chinese have been completely overwhelmed by superior Anglo-French military force. And of course, Bowlby, being a good journalist, he wants to be there at the moment when the surrender is signed. I think he must have had in his head the idea that I will be a unique witness to this. I'll be able to send back a dispatch about this great triumph. So he volunteers to go with this group, who it's assumed are going to go and negotiate the surrender. And what actually happens? Something very, very different. This delegation
5: is imprisoned. The accounts we do have suggest that the prisoners were tortured. They had ropes tied around them that when they dried would compress their limbs. Most of the limbs became infected. A lot of people died of sepsis, which is not a pleasant way to go.
4: And the mangled remains of Bowlby's body uh, and others is delivered back to the British, to his uh, friend, Lord Elgin, with whom he's had a lot to do over many months. They actually sketched what the bodies looked like, the coffins, when they arrived back. So it's almost like a photographic image, really, of the time.
1: What goes through your head when you're looking at a, at a rendering of, a, of one of your distant relatives being mangled?
4: How, like, how, what goes through your head when you look at an image like that? I did try and think what it must have been like and how quickly he realised that he was in desperate trouble um, and uh, how lonely, I think, those last few hours must have been. You can sense how shocking I think this must have been to a Lord Elgin who had been engaged in what, until then, it
5: appeared like a kind of triumphal procession towards the Chinese capital. When the commanders of the British and French expeditionary forces found out that this happened, there was a feeling that they needed to do something extra to punish the Qing court for what they thought to be was you know, treachery, they, you know, kidnapping, torturing diplomats who were under flag of truce. And They went back and forth. One of the thoughts was, let's burn down the Forbidden City. Which was essentially the seat of government. But, you know, there was a feeling about doing that that was, well, if we burn down the Forbidden City, the whole dynasty might fall. It'll be a you broke it, you bought it situation. At least the British had one giant subcontinent-sized colony that hated them already. Why add another one? better to work through a weakened dynasty that was you know, on its knees than have to take over yourself. And so instead of burning down the Forbidden City, they got the idea to actually hit the emperors where they really, where they really lived. And so the decision was to destroy the gardens. The complete destruction of the Summer Palace conquests.
1: It's said that the fire that the British and French started raged for three days and nights.
4: Thousands of soldiers taking several days to completely destroy what had been a huge complex of palaces and grounds and uh, containing all kinds of wonderful artifacts.
0: If I want to hurt you, then I, I destroy something you really love, then you were beaten. I visit the, uh, the old uh, Summer Palace, the Forbidden City, each time I go back to Beijing. And I try to calm down, I try to reason, I try to be neutral, and I, but I still feel very sad. It's more than sadness, it's really a lot.
1: It's a ruin. But inside those ruins, hiding behind precious vases and priceless artworks, something was hiding.
3: The story is that in the palace there were found these little dogs. And the story also is that these were little dogs that nobody really saw before because they were a very secret personal pet of the empresses and the, the eunuchs of the palace and so on. There's a very strong myth attached to these dogs, that they are special palace dogs. This is Sarah Chang. I'm senior tutor in the history of design at the Royal College of Art in London. I'm half Chinese and half English. My father was born in Shanghai. And I think initially I was interested in trying to understand why is there so much Chinese stuff in Britain, and why is it that if you go into somewhere like a stately home, which is the epitome of Britishness, it's full of Chinese things? And what is this obsession that people had with China? Right.
1: So, who was it that? Um, do we have any sense of who was it that originally found these dogs?
3: Um, we have a story. We have a story.
5: And that story goes something like this: It was this kennel of these little, you know, Pekinese dogs that. The idea was several of the officers who were the, at least the British officers involved, each took a puppy. A dog that was brought back, uh, I think probably in in,
4: in Lord Elgin's own entourage, if you like, and was then presented to the royal family.
3: So that's the one that we have a portrait of.
5: A Pekingese dog. And he he presents one of these puppies to Queen Victoria as her share of the loot. And then the royal family with what
4: does... uh, Still seemed like a uh, fairly brutal insensitivity Nicknamed this dog Lootie.
3: Actually named Lootie.
5: They called her Lootie. I mean, come on. <laughs> Here, your highness, we're so happy to have gone to war to protect your good name as the world's largest narco baron. In exchange, you get a dog, and she names the dog Lootie.
3: It says a lot about how acceptable it was to loot. This was normal. This was, this was the British had this God-given right to go out into the world and take stuff.
1: <laughs> That's right. The stuff the British stole was a real-life dog. A Pekingese dog, they're called. It's a breed you can still find today, which goes some way to explaining how I ended up, at the beginning of this episode, standing in a leafy Australian suburb in what can only be described as a looty shrine.
2: Yeah, uh, there are lots of images of... Uh, Lutie. You're looking at Luti.
1: Dr Hilary Ducro has been breeding Pekingese dogs all around the world since she was 10 years old. This is another image of the dog sitting up. And the Pekinese dogs themselves are a literal explosion of brown fur. Think the head of a mop has become sentient.
2: Uh, the dog actually looks like a little lion. Uh, with rabbit feet and little fluffy bits around like a mane of the line and the tail is a bit like a a squirrel or something that fluffs up over it.
1: (laughs) There is an incredibly dedicated, passionate Pekingese dog breeding community across the globe and it has its origins from the moment Lutie landed in the UK. Uh,
2: the fact that uh, particularly Luti came out and was Queen Victoria's dog, there was a very high level of endorsement, <laughs> you might say, that yeah. made people keen to have them.
1: Yeah. So even though the, obviously the dogs, not all Pekingese dogs, are descended from Lutie, the fact that the Queen had one mm. is clearly an influence oh on God. why it became such a big deal. Yeah, my word. But the popularity of the dog also says a lot about how the British felt or at least imagined, this Far East Empire.
3: They are supposed to be like little miniature Chinese emperors sitting on cushions. But they're also designed objects. So once you get a breeding population in Britain, then the breeders are trying to breed them to look a certain way. And they're trying to create what they see as a Chinese object. Uh, You get these very small ones called sleeve dogs, and they were said to have been bred in order to fit into the sleeve of a Chinese lady. There's a lots wrong with that as a concept. However, that was the story. Uh, And the sleeve dogs become very sought after. It's like the original handbag dog from Legally Blonde. (laughs) it (laughs) is. Yeah, a sleeve (laughs) dog. Put it up your sleeve.
1: Isn't it fascinating that some of its appeal lies in the fact that it's the product of this sort of opulent palace, but in actual fact, by the time it arrives in the UK, that palace has been raised to the ground. There's a sort of sick irony to that, isn't there?
3: Yeah, there is. Um, it's said that it's, a, it's an important um, dynamic within imperialism. That you have a constant nostalgia for the thing that you're in the act of destroying. So, at the same time as you disrupt local cultures and seek to, in fact, destroy them often in order to dominate, uh, you are mourning the loss of those cultures and trying to act in ways to preserve them.
0: Build
1: as the Pekingese dog starts to gain popularity in the West, back in China, communism takes hold. Political attitudes shift dramatically and what's left of the Summer Palace almost seems to fall out of
4: memory. For a long time, I think the site was very neglected. I think in the uh, for most of the 20th century, uh, it was not something that a lot of Chinese identified with. But then... ..something happens. Tens of thousands of troops backed by tanks wrest control of Tiananmen Square from protesting students. Some hospitals here are putting the death toll at more than 500, although the true figure may never be known.
1: The Tiananmen Square massacre will always be one of the darkest moments in modern Chinese history. The army fought a bloody path through more than one
4: million demonstrators overnight.
1: But it also proved to be the catalyst for a major change in how Beijing's leadership saw the Old Summer Palace.
5: In some ways, it was a response to what happened with the 1989 Tiananmen Square demonstrations. You know, the idea that the students in the 1980s didn't adequately understand you know, China's history and China's past, and so they wanted to be sure that subsequent generations knew the real story of their country the Chinese Communist
4: Party, perhaps sensing that uh, it was needing to shore up its power in any way possible, has developed, of course, this great patriotic sense. And with that has gone a huge investment in a new idea of history and an idea of 19th century humiliation.
5: And a key part of that story is something called the century of humiliation, in which China suffered. Were again and again at the hands of the foreign powers through a series of wars that ended in a series of treaties that were unfair to China and slowly stripped away China's sovereignty. This kind of site is a powerful reminder of that era. Teaching everyone uh, what happened in the 19th century in order to reinforce the
4: idea that you need a strong government now to stand up to the rest of the world. These ruins
1: have been left in such brutal decay for a reason. They're a warning.
0: As, uh, as Chinese, you are weak. <laughs> this is your fate.
4: When I was going around the site, when I was there, you f- saw very few uh, foreign tourists, but it was full of Chinese schoolchildren and other visitors who were being taken there systematically, being taken around by guides from the culture ministry and being given a very clear narrative. This is... The phrase has been used, a kind of Chinese uh, ground zero. This is a place where something terrible happened. You are weak. Here's the story. Your fate. Our culture attacked by these foreigners recklessly. Uh, we must learn from this. Do you
1: think it's come to symbolize something of a cautionary tale?
0: Yes, I think so. Very strong. Very strong. Very strong. It's there. And. Um the history is uh, not a uh, far distance. History is still, still close to us.
1: And that warning sign runs straight through the veins of these strange, furry Pekinese dogs, too.
3: I do think it's important to not just to laugh at at, at these dogs, but to take seriously what was done in you know, in terms of violence, um, in terms of. Um, finding yet another way in which to assert ideas about British superiority. These dogs were actually, um, you know, important tools of, of British imperialism. Uh, and so I find that people will, will just burst out laughing when I show them images of these early dogs. And I, I think that's fair enough, but I also would like to think that it's not all a laughing matter.
5: This is obviously such an important and emotional moment in Chinese history for a lot of people in China. And I think that in the West, and I think this is perhaps more true where I grew up in the United States, which tends to have a shorter view of history, there's a tendency to kind of feel like, well, just get over it. You know, it was 1860, we're moving on. But this was a moment that China's still kind of recovering from, you know, in an era when many other countries were industrializing and developing they were subject to treaties that bound them to you know a whole host of different foreign powers in a variety of ways. So I think people will get over this when they get over this. It's not for me to say like, oh, it was in the past, you know, let's move on. And I think it's also important that people in the, the, in the West and places like the US realize that we're not the ones who did the destruction, but our lifestyles growing up in developed countries, one reason those countries are more developed than other parts of the world it's because there's a legacy of colonialism that gave those countries a boost up. And I need to be aware of that when I'm walking around a place like this. And if I forget that, one of these Chinese aunties will certainly come over and remind me. So, you know, <laughs> there's that. <laughs>
1: Duff the British Doll was produced by Zoe Ferguson and myself. The executive producer is Amrutha Slee and Julie Browning is the head of society and culture. The mixing and sound design is by Martin Peralta. If you are enjoying this series, we're now at episode three, it would be incredible. I would be eternally grateful if you would head along to whichever podcasting app you use and leave a review. It's just one of those things that particularly early on in a series is so key to getting new people to discover the show uh also you can tell a friend in person if that's how you roll and as always you can tag me on social media share it on your instagram account twitter facebook all the rest we also have an email address uh, and i'd love to know if you've ever been in a museum and thought to yourself how did that particular artifact get here we would like to know if you've ever had something you've thought to yourself there might be a story there We're hunting around for stories for Season 2, and we'd love to hear from you. The email address is stolen at your.abc.net.au. Stuff the British Stole has been a production of ABC RN, and it was created, written, and edited by me. I'm Mark Fennell, and here's a hint for the next episode. It's on your face, and it's going to hurt.